prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the riches within it. Thank you for the wonder of these verses we've been looking at this term. As you look at the next one tonight, help us to see how wonderful it is and to see how relevant it is, not just for us, but for all people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, our next verse then is John 1.12. Sure, we all know it very well. We've heard it countless times. There it is. John 1.12. I'm looking at verses John 1.12 and 13, actually. Uh, if you want to find the Bible, it's on page 1063. It's part of that great prologue in John's Gospel. We have read every Christmas at carol services at the great climax. It's a wonderful statement about the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he came to do. And John 1, 12 and 13 says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege, of becoming children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. First, uh, a story about a man who owned the city's newspaper, a very successful business paper tycoon, and he had three sons. And he was wondering who to pass the ownership of the newspaper over to. And he decided he'd offer it to the son who could write the most sensational headline of no more than three words. So the first one had a go. And his headline was, Bush Turns Communist. Well, that was pretty good. I wonder what the others would come up with. The second one concocted this one. Bin Laden Becomes Christian. Well, that would be a good one, wouldn't it? And he thought, that's pretty good. But he didn't get the prize. The one who won the prize was the third son who inherited the newspaper when his headline was submitted. It had actually only two words, Pope elopes. Well, there's a thought, isn't it? Now, fortunately, we don't have to earn our spiritual inheritance by sensational works because the Bible tells us that God's grace is sufficient. And that's what we're thinking about tonight, how it is that we can make what God offers to us our own, how we can, as it were, taste of God's grace. But first of all, I want to recap, looking at the verses that we looked at. They have formed a sort of a, a pattern or a progression, if you like, and I hope you've realized that. And some of you may have seen uh, the bridge diagram. Many of us may have seen the bridge diagram, which is a way of explaining it. But if you've never done, uh, I, I do commend it to you. I think it's a very simple way of explaining the Christian gospel to somebody who doesn't know. Someone says to you, look, I, I don't know what the Christian faith is about. Here is a great way of explaining it, very simply, uh, using a little diagram and the verses that we've looked at this term. Because could you explain it to someone? Someone said to you, look, I'm not a Christian, but I'd, I'd love to be a Christian, or I'd love to know what it's about. Can you explain it to me? Would you know what to say? How would you do it? Well, here's a way. Uh, a pictorial summary of where we've got to so far. The first picture is of God and man. You ask if God on one side, man on the other. Now, in some senses, it's, it's, it's a bit inadequate, this one. Uh, I remember doing this once in London, and a lady came up to me and said, you can never show that to a Muslim. And you say, why is that? They say, well, because it makes God and man equal, about the same size. And of course, they're not equal. And I said, well, that's absolutely true, absolutely true. But for the purposes of the illustration, I'm going to use it anyway. Um, so if you're doing it, don't do it to a Muslim. I think that's what I learned from that. But nevertheless, it does make sense. So that's the first picture of God and man. So what is God like? Well, answer, God is holy. And that was our first verse. Do you remember? Revelation 4, verse 11. That you, O Lord, are worthy of, of glory and honor and power. And this, and the other, because you created all things, and by your power they were created and have their being. 
So God is great, holy, he's worthy of all the praise and honour we can give him. He is the great creator God, amongst many other things. So God is holy. He is holy. He is perfect. He is absolutely perfect in every way. And then we looked at Christ, remember, week two, who is God's image. He is the image of the invisible God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. We, see, we can't see God. We don't understand God. The only way we can understand him is if he reveals himself to us. And he's done so supremely in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we looked at Christ. Well, what are we by comparison? Answer, we are sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's no exception. Every single one of us is in the same boat. Whatever we do, however hard we try, we are sinful. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means there's a barrier between us and God. That is our sin. Our sin cuts us off from him. There's nothing we can do about it. It's there as a barrier, and we cannot get rid of it, however hard we try. But we do try. And here's one I'm adding a little one in, actually, just in case you want. So if you uh, know all these backwards, here's a little bit you can wake up. Um, just to overcome the gap, how do we try and do it? What do we do? Well, we try and do it by our works. So here's a verse, Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The point is that we will never cross that chasm by our own works. We cannot do it. We will never do it by observing the law because we can't keep the law in its entirety. It doesn't work. So what does God do? Answer, he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The exchange takes place. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. And that's what we were looking at two weeks ago. And that's where we were left. The chasm has been spanned because of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But is that it? Is it automatic? Or if not, what do we have to do? And the answer lies in our verse tonight, John 1, 12, or 12, 13. Uh, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what do we have to do? Receive him, believe in his name. Now there are two mistakes that most people make in thinking about their relationship with God. First, is to assume that we are all children of God. I often hear people say, oh, we're all children of God. They assume that they're sort of kind of on God's side. But the fact is, according to the Bible, that we're not God's children, and we'll see in a moment. And equally, people assume that there's nothing we need to do. I used to think, you know, I am a Christian. I don't need to do anything. I just am a Christian. I'm, I'm English. I believe in God, and I've been confirmed. I must be a Christian. Well, this verse gives the lie to both ideas, because it says to all who received him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It is one of the great verses of the Bible. I have shared it with so many people on different occasions, uh, just to say, look, this is what we have to do. We have to receive him. We have to believe in him. That's the way we become children of God. In many ways, that verse is the summary of the entire John's Gospel. John's gospel is all about convincing us that Jesus is Christ and that if only we will believe in him, we will have eternal life. We will become God's children. And now what do we do? We receive him. We believe in his name. This is the whole message, in a sense, of John's gospel. He says, Jesus' ministry, 
tied up in that verse. If only we will receive him and believe in him. We've all heard it again and again at carol service. I guess it's a verse that everybody in the country has heard at one stage or another. But how many have truly understood it? I've been looking at this week and I hadn't really noticed that these two verses, verses 12 and 13, in some ways almost contradict one another. Have you ever noticed that? In verse 12, we're told that what we need to do to become children of God, or at least to have the privilege of becoming children of God, we need to receive him and believe in his name. But then verse 13 says that there's nothing we can do about becoming children of God because that's something that only God can do. It's not a human decision, it is of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision, but of God. So how do the two hold together? Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's first of all look at verse 12. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here John gives two conditions for someone becoming a child of God. First, notice this. We are not by nature children of God. See, the world naturally thinks that uh, we're the good guys. And people in the world think that they're the good guys. If there is a God, he will look kindly on us. After all, we are all children of God. I've often heard people say just that. We're all children of God. Now, in a general sense, that may be true in that we're all created by God. But in a stricter sense, in the Bible sense, we're not children of God at all. The Jewish leaders all thought they were children of God or children of Abraham. But Jesus told them something quite different. Turn on to John chapter 8, verses 39 to 47. John chapter 8, just a few uh, pages later. Jesus is having a dispute here with some of the Jewish leaders. He's getting into an argument. And in verse 39, the uh, Jewish leaders protest, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. See, that was their claim. And what does Jesus say? If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I'm here. I haven't come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Isn't that an extraordinary statement? You belong to your father, the devil. See, here were religious people. They thought that they were children of God, children of Abraham. They were people of the true faith. And yet where God comes to them, they want nothing to do with him. And so Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. He's a liar. Verse 45, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin if I'm telling the truth? Why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you do not belong to God. No, you don't. Because you belong to your father, the devil. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? You are of your father, the devil. You're not children of Abraham. You're not children of God himself. You are of the devil. And the proof of that is that when God comes to them, they don't accept him. When the Lord Jesus arrives, they refuse to acknowledge him. And the Lord Jesus is and was one with the Father. And because they refused to accept him, they couldn't claim to be God's children. No, they were Jesus' enemies. And because of that, they were children of the devil, because they followed the devil and they did his bidding. That's a pretty devastating thought, isn't it? Because it is true of all who refuse to follow Christ. 
The point is, you see, we are not by nature children of God. That is the consistent message of the New Testament. We don't follow God. We follow the ways of this world. We follow the prince of the power of the air. We follow the devil. We are children of the devil by nature. And that is why there's something we must do. That's why we're not automatically Christians. That's why we have to respond in some way. And that's the second thing most people don't realize, that there's something they have to do. See, when I was in my first term at university, I went along to uh, a little group that was set up by some of the Christians in my college. I thought I was quite religious, and they were talking about Christian things, so I'd go along. And as I went along, I began to become increasingly aware that these people had something I didn't have. One night they invited me along, one week they invited me along to a meeting on Sunday, to a service in the church. And I can remember knowing that I had to be there. Absolutely nothing in the world would kept me from being at that meeting. And I'd been down to London to play football at the weekend, and I made sure I got a train back doubly early so I wouldn't miss out on that meeting. I went along to it, and at the end of the talk by a man called David Watson, many of you have heard of him, many of you probably have heard him, it was made clear there was something I had to do. I had to receive him. I had to ask Christ into my life. Nobody had ever told me that before. I had never understood that. And that was the night I asked Christ to come in and my life changed irrevocably. See, nobody ever told me that. And an awful lot of people don't realize there's something they have to do. They assumed it was automatic, like I did. I was English, I believed in God, I'd been confirmed. Surely that made me a Christian. But it didn't. I had to receive him and believe in his name. You see, I suspect Morton is full of people who don't think there's anything they need to do. Oh, I'm a Christian, I say. Oh, I am a Christian. But they're not a Christian. They're of their father, the devil. There I said. Because they have refused to accept the one who is truly God. Not everyone is a child of God. It's a very hard thing to recognize. But that's Jesus' diagnosis. So what is it we have to do to cross over from one side to the other? Two things, says John. We need to receive him, and we need to believe in his name. And they really mean the same thing. The Bible actually uses a number of different words or expressions to describe the process by which we become God's true children. Believing, trusting, asking him in, receiving him, opening the door. They all really mean the same thing. They mean taking the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives to live for him. And I want you to notice too, there's an awful lot of difference between believing something to be true and trusting in it. See, what uh, John is not saying here is that we just have to believe that Jesus is God. He's not saying that at all. Uh, I believe Robert Mugabe exists, but I'm not a follower. I believe Joseph Stalin lived, but I'm not a fan. In fact, believing in is almost a wrong translation. It actually suggests believing towards. It, de it denotes motion. It suggests our trusting involves action. That's what it actually literally says, uh, believing towards him. And therefore, it involves an active commitment of the will to follow him, to obey him, to go his way. But to all who do that, who trust in him, who place their trust in him, who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. Other translations talk about power here, but it means the privilege. He gives the privilege of being children of God. If we trust in Christ, we have the unbelievable privilege of being God's children. And I sometimes wonder if we fully realize what an unbelievable privilege that is. Do you know that in the Hindu religion, there are over a thousand names for God, but not one of them is Father. 
Do you know that whilst the Jews believed in God as the father of their nation, they never spoke of him personally as their father. And yet we have that privilege if we receive Christ. In fact, it's almost better than that. I remember a friend of mine who'd been on holiday in Israel and being asked what the most memorable moment of his trip was. You know, I expect him to say, you know, going to Galilee or Jerusalem. You know, I'd love to go to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee or whatever. No, he said the most memorable moment of his trip was sitting by the side of a pool, watching a little boy jumping in and out and shouting out to his father and crying, Abba. And he suddenly realized that this child who trusted in his dad by the side of the pool was using exactly the same name for his dad as the Bible tells us we should call father, God, Abba. Now, is that unbelievable? That that's the intimacy of relationship that we can have with our Heavenly Father. And if we receive Him, if we believe in His name, that's what He becomes, our Dad, Abba, Father. You know, too, that in all Jesus' life, He only ever referred to God as His Father. When He was praying, Father, all these things He asked of Him, except on one occasion, when He hung on the cross, separated from His Father by our sin, Instead, he shouted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, that intimacy was broken. But all the other times, he called him Father. And he gives us that privilege, too, of calling God our Father. We become his children. It is an unbelievable privilege. I always remember uh, years ago when uh, I was in my first church, and I went to see somebody who was a leader in one of the youth groups. And we were chatting away, and the, and the door went. I think it was a Saturday morning, so Saturday morning the doorbell goes, it's Jehovah's Witnesses. So we invited them in. And they sat down for a little bit. And the, one of their first questions was, why don't you call God Jehovah? I thought that's quite a good question, actually, because Jehovah in the Old Testament, Yahweh, why don't we call him Jehovah? And my friend said, because the Christian name for God is Father. And he had nothing to say. See, he knew God, Jehovah, from a distance. But we knew as our Father because that is our unbelievable privilege. And to receive that privilege, what do we have to do? Ask Christ in, receive him. It sounds so simple. But notice what happens when we do. You see, this is the other side of the coin, verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. It's a strange thing, on the one hand, we've decided and received him, but actually, we're born of God. But of course, as so often in the Bible, it's two sides of the same coin. We choose to receive him, he gives us a new birth. And if you think about it, it answers two great questions. There are two barriers to our receiving eternal life. The first barrier is our sin. We've seen already that we've all sinned, and sin pays its wage, death. One day, each one of us will be cut off from God forever because of our sin. So what does God do? He sends his son so we can be forgiven. And what we have to do is receive him. If we receive him, our sins are dealt with. But we have another barrier, which is really because of our sin, and that is our spiritual blindness. You see, we, not only are we not forgiven, we can't understand the things of God by ourselves because we're dead in our sins. We're blind to spiritual truth. So what does God do? He sends his Holy Spirit so those blinkers can be removed and we can be born again. So if you move on again to chapter 3, just very quickly, where we read about Nicodemus being born again. From that conversation in John chapter 3, just turn on a page or so. He comes to see Jesus by night. He's a, a godly man. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He comes to see Jesus by night. And he asks him, look, we know that you must be a teacher, come from God. And he's sort of saying, well, what do I do? And Jesus turns around and says, I tell you the truth. 
unless no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time to his mother's womb to be born. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. You've got to be born again. And that is of God. And as we receive Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the other side of the coin is we are born again. And that is how it all becomes a reality for us. John Piper, the uh, great American preacher, put it like this. Between us and eternal life, there are two great obstacles. One is that we're spiritually lifeless and dead. The other is that we're sinfully corrupt and guilty. And we cannot inherit life as children of God if we are dead and if we are guilty. But God so loved us that he did two things. He sent his spirit to cause us to be born again and make us pass from death to life. And he sent his son to remove the guilt of all who believe in him. To all who received him who believe in his name, he gave the privilege, the inestimable privilege, of becoming children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I just want to say that two things really. If there's anyone here who's never really made that deal, and never really been born again, never really come to know the wonder of Christ and what it is to be a child of God. All we have to do is receive him and believe in his name, place our trust in him. We can do that tonight. But equally, I also want to say, I don't know if you've ever been stuck for words in sharing these things with somebody, and you want to know how to do it. Well, it's a great verse to turn to. And you can just say to the person, what do you need to do to become a child of God? Answer, receive him Believe in his name. Place your trust in him. And when people see that, sometimes just like scales fall from their eyes, they say, yes, I see it. And that's what I must do. Let's pray that we will have the privilege of being able to share that with somebody sometime soon. Let's pray, and then we'll sing our final song together.